Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. But you already know that because you heard it in the introduction. A reminder that the Business of Agriculture is not just an audio format. It is also in video. That's right. Please go to YouTube. You can just type in Damian Mason. You'll find my channel. It's actually D. Mason Comedy, hearkening back to my political comedy roots. And please subscribe. It would really help me get some more visibility and it would help more people hear the message of the Business of Agriculture. Uh, i got a great show for you today. i got a guy named Chris Keel. He and I met doing some work for South Dakota Bankers Association. He is the managing director of Armada Corporate Intelligence out of Kansas City, Kansas. And so he and I spent some time together online. I liked his stuff, talking about economics. What we're going to discuss is the current economics based on the coronavirus response. And then we're also going to talk about what it means to you in the business of agriculture and moving forward. I know that everybody's just about coronavirus out, but uh, we do have to recognize it, acknowledge what it's done to the economy what it's going to do to us and some things that we can see. So before uh, we bring Chris on, a reminder that this episode, like so many others, you know, we're up to about 150 of these, 150 episodes of the Business of Agriculture. This one is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Nick Horeb is a guy that is a smart dude. He's an entrepreneur and he set out to build a better software package for agricultural enterprises. You're, You're not out there like they try and portray you with like, you know, a plow behind a horse. You're out there with an industry. You've got millions of dollars of capital at risk. Don't you need a software solution that keeps up with the times? Harvest Profit will give you a 14-day free trial. Go to harvestprofit.com. It's a software solution to manage the insides and the outsides of your business, the inputs, the part, the, the money side of your business. All right, Chris Keel, you heard my introduction. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the business of agriculture. Very good. Thank you very much. Okay, you and I were on a call with the South Dakota Bankers Association, and you uh, had some really good stuff about some of the impact of coronavirus. One of them that I took away for sure was that uh, the amount of savings. The government threw so damn much money at people that now we have a savings rate like we've never seen before. We averaged, the last article I read said that we averaged 3.7% of uh, savings uh, in the United States. And then during uh, April or May, it was May, I think it was, you said, we bumped it to about 20 uh, to 25%? 24%, yeah. Okay, so the thing is that they, they didn't spare on, they didn't spare on, I mean, they saved money because they couldn't go out and blow it, the American consumer, but they still ate. But they ate differently. And that's what I think we should talk about is the economics of eating under coronavirus and then looking ahead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we ended up with was a big stimulus bill, which we couldn't do anything with. I mean, the whole idea of uh, getting out of a recession is to have the consumer spend their way out of it. And that was the whole idea. You flooded the economy with money and people would go out and spend money. Unfortunately, with most of the businesses shut down, there was no place to spend money. But as you point out, the restaurants and the food purveyors were an exception. All of a sudden, we started seeing people buy a lot more in the grocery store. There was even a shortage at one point, if people remember this, of yeast and flour. Everyone said, I must bake. Really, baking and toilet paper are the response to COVID-19. Not quite sure how that connects. What's interesting to me is I understand, you know, we've got, uh, certainly in the more affluent neighborhoods, 
we have people with hundred thousand dollar kitchens. You know, that's what's remarkable. You go through some of these nicer neighborhoods and they've got like Viking, basically restaurants don't have the level of appliances that some of these high end homes have. And I'm thinking, well, you're not even using them. Pre-COVID, I think that those were the, you know, you had more uh, high-end kitchen uh, apparatus in the United States than most countries have throughout their entire food service industry, and we weren't even using it. Well, I think sometimes then, finally, they decided they're going to they're going to go ahead and dip their toe in the water and and like baking of all things. Yeah, like you well, said. yeah, I know. It's oh, it's. Okay. I always liken it to the seventy year old guy that has a Harley in his garage. You know, he he's got one. He's afraid to ride it, but he's got one. Um, but I think what we're seeing is is probably a shift in how people will handle their consumption going forward. They're going to be a lot more dependent on the grocery store. Still a lot of packaged stuff. Most of what's been selling from the grocery perspective has been the pre-prepared meals, et cetera. But I think there is some implications for the agricultural sector, particularly when it comes to the what they consume, whether there's gonna be more chicken, more beef, more fish, more vegetarian. It's been interesting that the vegetarian thrust kind of eased a little bit um, as, as people were like, look, there are very few pleasures left in my life now. Um, I can't go out. I can't go to a movie. I can't go to a bar. By God, I am going to eat a steak. Yeah, you know, we all saw the things. In fact, I posted on social media myself that I went to the Fries, which is a Kroger uh, when I was in Arizona, and you could get all of the vegan crap you wanted. You could get all the Beyond Beef or whatever it is, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, but you surely really were restricted on what you could get in the way of the real stuff. And then, you know, milk sales. I'm a dairy guy. Right. Milk sales spiked like crazy, 55% increase in the second two weeks of March and about a 25 to 35% in the first part of April. So so yeah, what we saw happening it changed consumption, but it also still hurt agriculture because they weren't going right. out. You know, cheese and beef are two of the biggies that, uh, you know, pork didn't change much. Eggs didn't necessarily change much. In fact, eggs went up because people stayed home and they know how to make eggs. You know, even a bad cook can fry up an egg. But what we saw was cheese of all things, you know, because so much cheese is consumed when you go to a Mexican restaurant, right, cetera, right, et cetera. So does that stuff bounce back? I've got my, I've got my hesitance to say yes. And I'll tell you why. According to opentable.com, they said 25% of the restaurants will never reopen. I think that's being optimistic. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's probably going to be closer to a third. And restaurants hang on by the skin of their teeth anyway. I mean, they can't handle more than a week or two of down business. And when they get shut down altogether for three months, it, it just doesn't come back. And when it does come back, it's gonna come back in a highly limited form. I mean, I don't know about other people's areas, but in my area, for example, they were all excited. We're gonna eat outside. Restaurants are gonna be allowed to eat outside. They were saying this in April and May in Kansas City. When it came to June, it's like, really, we're going to eat outside. It's 93 degrees, 180% humidity, and you're sitting on asphalt. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to spend 100 bucks for a meal under those circumstances. No, I'm not. Right. I, I think that that's going to be a reality for sure. So you've got um, this, this scenario where obviously Americans are eating. Uh, another article that I read, they call it the COVID-15. Not the COVID-19, that's the virus. The COVID-15, <laughs> right, like the right. freshman 15. I've always worked from home or from an airplane or an airport. People always say things like, when I travel, I gain weight. Or apparently when they sit at home, they gain weight. 
I've just not had that issue because I've always either been on a traveling or working from my home. But apparently these other people just uh, kept going to the refrigerator. Um, so the food consumption was up, but still we got a dollars issue because you don't make as much money on uh, some crap that you eat at home as opposed to the stuff you go out and eat at the restaurant. And certainly for ag, the other big issue is global. You know, this is a highly export-oriented business, as you know, and as all the listeners know. And one of the things we count on is food consumption around the rest of the world. So even if ours is holding its own or even increasing in some areas, we're concerned about what's going on in China, what's happening in India, what's happening in Europe. We worry about our competitor nations, you know, Brazil and Argentina and Australia, many of whom have had much worse issues than we have. I mean, Latin America is just now getting hit hard with COVID-19. Their productivity is going to collapse in the next few months. Not a good time for them from an agricultural perspective. Um, I'm, as you pointed out, from Kansas. People are shocked to discover that Kansas is in the top 10 of export states in the United States. It's like, look, we grow a lot of food. We try to eat as much of it as we can. We're in the top 10 fattest states, too. But eventually, we have to sell it. And those buyers are experiencing their own issues. Yeah, so let's talk about the consumer. So we talked about savings rate. That was That's a positive generally, except that it's not positive. You're trying to stimulate the economy. Then we talk about moving forward. My agricultural people are sitting here, Chris, saying, I don't know, man. We've still got these low commodity prices. A lot of my right. people bristle when I tell them, guys, it's not because of, uh, it's not because of the China situation. It's because we have too much soybeans. We have too much wheat. We have too much corn. We have too much of everything. We always overproduce. Are we going to have a situation where consumption in general goes down because the global economy has takes such a hit? I think there will be some of that. And one of the other things that farmers need to understand about our overproduction, we used to have the attitude that a lot of our surplus production was going to be distributed to poor countries all over the world. We were going to be generous and we were going to make sure that all these starving nations, we don't do that anymore because there's not money for it. I mean, right now, there's a massive famine going on in East Africa and in the Middle East because of the locusts. They could buy as much food as we could produce. The problem is they have no money. Right. And the U.S. is not going to contribute it. So you don't have that factor of buying up our extra production. Yeah, we've had this for as long, you know, when, when I was a kid, you know, uh, Ethiopia was the big story. Right. Well, not you know, 35 years ago, let's say. Um, there's always been this issue of uh, we had the supply and uh, they had no money to get it. And then there's the issue of logistics. And then, of course, there was the other tragic issue that uh, we would figure out a way to get them the food and somehow get the money. And then it would fall in the hands of some warring faction that exactly. and then just profiteered from it. And those things still happen. Uh, last time the meat consumption went down in the United States was in 09 to 014. We went from 220 pounds of meat consumption down to 200. It's uh, referenced in my book, Food Fear, that I commonly tout during my podcast. If you have not picked this up, dear listener or viewer, reminder that this is in hardback. It's also available on audiobook or ebooks. You have no excuse to not pick it up at DamianMace.com. 
220 pounds of meat per American down to about 200. And that took five years of whittling down. It was because of the recession. So Americans still ate more meat than anywhere, any other um, nationality on earth. However, we scaled back by 10%. I predict that we will scale back a little bit, but it's not going to be that drastic because this one was, is less fundamentally bad, meaning we really do have a chance of getting out of this one cleaner. I agree. However, I wonder when all these people keep saying V-shaped, 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 they don't know what damage has been done out here. We have too many right. Americans this that their job has been secure. They have a government job or a corporate job. They've been paid to sit at home or barely show up or work from home, which we really means watch TV, sleep in, wear sweatpants, and then return some emails. They don't realize there is still some damage that's been done to the small business community and to other insulary businesses. So what's your prediction? Yeah, I think you're right. We're not really looking at this accurately yet. We know that 148,000 small businesses have gone out of business permanently. These are not temporary bankruptcies. We know that this V-shaped recovery is probably going to look a lot more like what they're calling a swoosh now. We ran out of letters, so now we're referring to it like the Nike swoosh. Mm -hmm. But that depends on two things. It depends on the consumer, and it depends on whether government continues to unlock the lockdown. I mean, right now, it's being reimposed, and that slows things even further. I agree with you that this is not yet as dangerous a recession as we got in 2008. That thing lasted for a year and a half. We had quarter after quarter after quarter. So far, we've had one serious down quarter, and that was second quarter. We will probably see some progress in third quarter and in fourth quarter, which means that it's a much shorter but sharper recession. And I think the vast majority of people who are food consumers have not been affected that badly. They will still be able to buy things. As we mentioned in the last time we met, my grandson is a large animal veterinarian. So I get a lot of information about what's going on in the cattle and the dairy industry from him. And the cattle industry has not felt the decline quite as drastically so far as dairy, but that was something that was going on even before this. I mean, we're dealing with trends that have years and years and years behind them as opposed to something that just miraculously showed up in March. So here's the thing. You're, uh, you're looking at the business of agriculture. Uh, we're getting $16 billion thrown at us from federal monies. Uh, that would be a big deal in any other year. A, agriculture oftentimes gets federal money thrown at it uh, because the policy of the USDA is to keep the, the business flush, to keep, to keep the business flush because that means we have adequate amount of food. But $16 billion this year, when there's billions going here, there, and everywhere, it's almost like, well, we lost track. That's like when you, when you like lose some change in your couch. Will there be more money thrown at agriculture this year? And I know you're not necessarily an agricultural economist. You're an economist. I got my prediction, your prediction. Yeah, I think there will probably be a little bit more thrown at it, but not a lot because it's not launching itself up as far as the priorities are concerned. And you're absolutely right. We have tended to support agriculture because, frankly, if you want to start up a business, it doesn't take a lot of time. I mean, you can get up and running within a matter of months. How do you start up a farm from scratch? If it goes down, it takes years to bring it back. You don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'll just go get 100 cows. What the heck? How tough can this be? Um, so 
there's always this notion of, of protecting an industry from the inevitable ebbs and flows. The problem now is that ag is going to be competing with everybody else. There's going to be the infrastructure demands. There's going to be the demand for yet another bailout for people who have lost their jobs. All of those things are going to be coming to a head, and it's a political year. So the politicians are looking, where are the largest groups of people? Urban areas. Maybe I should make them happy, and I'll worry about the rural areas later. Well, that unfortunately happens all the time because it's a matter of a, the foot race to get votes. And we know that with only 19% of the population lives on 97% of the landscape, we're pretty well sparse out here, and we don't we don't pack the votes into a technical jurisdiction. We're talking about ag and economics. He's my guest, Chris Keel, and I want to remind you, speaking of ag and your own economics with your agricultural enterprise, that the Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Harvest Profit, a North Dakota-based company, but it does not matter where they are because you can use their product wherever you are. They have 600-plus customers in 26 states and four provinces. Uh, Nick Horb is the founder of this company. He writes brilliant articles, so go to Harvest Profit. Check them out. It's a software solution to manage your agricultural enterprise. You need what they have because you need to keep your business moving forward. Okay, so we talk about food consumption changes. Uh, we talk about money being thrown in agriculture. What looming thing do you see that is going to impact the people who listen to this show that they're not thinking about right now? Probably the biggest issue is going to be on the manufacturing side because you're looking at all the equipment that's a successful operation now. Manufacturing took a big hit. We're seeing a lot of supply chain changes, and those had started before COVID-19, but they really accelerated now. So when you're talking about the Deers and the Cases and all these different companies, they've gotten parts from all over the world. That supply chain is now in shambles, and they're going to be looking to get it from other places. Some may come back to the United States, but this is likely to make this equipment more expensive, and it's also likely to make it a little bit harder to get. Yeah, now we've always talked about supply chain, and I had a video that went uh, viral explaining the, the squeeze in the middle that nobody understood about like processing hogs. We don't think about it as much as consumers in ag. We think about it as producers. But as a consumer, if there's a lot of pressure because China and the United States are going to be more and more like this, trust me, that ain't going to get better. It's not what right. I'm to make up. So any of the crap that's being made there, it could be generic herbicide or insecticide because a lot of the of the product is made there, um, we start seeing these supply chain shifts, and it's not because they can't make it, it's because there's going to be pressure just to not make it there. Am I right? Right, right. I mean, exactly. And you're looking at a relationship that has been foundering for a long time. People have said, well, you know, when we get a new administration, the Democrats have traditionally hated China more than the Republicans have. This has been a historical issue. And the only thing in the world that Donald Trump and Sherrod Brown of Ohio agree on is hating China. Um, so the most liberal senator and the conservative president, they at least have one thing in common. They, they hate China. So there's going to be some supply, meaning on the stuff that we need. I, I mean, I know that we got some herbicides and things like that that are made there. And then you mentioned equipment. Um, the other thing that these folks that are listening to this show probably haven't thought about as much from an economic standpoint is how long does this last? You know, ag is always countercyclical, almost always. So their economy, we're used to having a economy that's nobody would uh, you know uh, right <laughs> how long does this last we don't have a v-shape and all that in 2021 i think there is still damage because there was nothing fundamentally wrong but we've hurt sectors 
2021, I think we still have the recession harmed. What's your thought? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we will see an overall recovery. The economy will look very healthy, but it's going to be something where you have whole sectors that are still deeply wounded. A lot of the service sectors are going to be down. A lot of the sectors that are really dependent on consumer spending of disposable income, that's going to be down. You'll have recovery in professional services and, and medical and, and some of those high dollar areas. So the economy will look better, but you're going to have these big chunks that are not doing very well. And again, if you're looking at the export side of things, we may recover in 2021. Latin America is not going to be, Africa is not going to be, most of Asia is not going to be, Europe will be sicker than us. So again, when you're talking about an industry that is dependent on both import and export, it matters that the rest of the world probably won't be doing as well even as us. Okay, another question for you, and it has to do with Latin America, you've mentioned it twice, and we know that in food particularly, crops, particularly soybeans, uh, and then a few other things, corn, and then even now pork. Brazil is a huge player. They get wounded as a country. I've got a prediction that the countries like Argentina, if they can get their political act together, Brazil for sure, they will start doing everything they can to make it worse for us, which will make it better for them agriculturally. Because if they are wounded, the one thing that they know is they can still go out and bulldoze down some forest and plant the hell out of soybeans. I see them getting more aggressive and uh, courting China, et cetera. Am I accurate in my prediction? Yeah, I think they'll try. The challenge that Brazil in particular is going to have is that Bolsonaro is one of the so-called ostrich alliance. He's one of the leaders who has not acknowledged the problems that have struck the country because of COVID-19 and it's causing civil unrest and all of this kind of thing. I think Brazil is going to be locked in a major political battle through the next year or so, which will inhibit their ability to make those kind of changes that you suggest, but they'll try. And so will Argentina. They're equally badly run. The only thing that's really helping us at the moment is most of the major Latin American nations have the worst leaders one can imagine between Bolsonaro and Fernandez and good old AMLO in Mexico. Mexico should be gaining like crazy in this environment, but you've got this crazy left-wing mayor from Mexico City that's plunged the country into a worse recession than it needs to be. Speaking of Mexico, USMCA just started July 1st. Uh, I applauded it as an agricultural person. Um, I, I can tell you that living here in the Rust Belt in northern Indiana, when NAFTA went through in 1994, it was probably the nail in the coffin for some of these manufacturing facilities here, and it hurt us badly. But from an agricultural standpoint, it tends to be pretty good. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's basically hanging in there, as did NAFTA. It's good for ag. It is not very good for manufacturing. But now the world has changed to the point that rather than we losing manufacturing to Mexico, because we already lost it, it's China losing manufacturing to Mexico. So it's not that we're getting it back, but we're getting it closer. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and it helps. I say that, you know, I know that Canada props up their poultry and their dairy and a few other things through protectionism. But I understand why the Canadians do that, because they have always said, if we don't keep that, then all of a sudden U.S. puts us out of business and then we then we have no resources to fall back on. We lose our food autonomy. But in general, uh, it did straighten out some things there. And us and Canada have a, a pretty good relationship. Obviously, I think it's better to have your uh, have your sort have your have your trade there close 
Of course, everybody likes to say, well, you can't take 130 million Mexicans and 37 million Canadians and replace a 1.3 billion China. Uh, that's probably true. Your thoughts? Well, it is up to a point, but I think one of the things that people tend to forget about China is that a billion of that population is essentially an undeveloped nation. They don't consume very much. They don't produce very much. We're really competing against the 400 million Chinese that are part of the developed China. And when you start looking at those numbers, it's like, huh, that's about the same as Europe. We're at about 340 million. We're a lot more equal in that than we realize. Yeah, the one billion that are out there living nine people in an apartment, uh, you, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, their per capita their per capita GDP is so minuscule. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Yeah, I mean, we need to pay attention to the fact that the reason we're dealing with COVID-19 is that there were people in China trying to eat bats. So <laughs> that, that says a lot right there. They say a lot. Okay, I've got another prediction that I have made. I did it, I believe, on this podcast about uh, two to four weeks ago. I saw that grocery prices between March 1st and May 30th climbed 5.8%. We had not seen a climb in groceries and food prices like that since 1974. Uh, you know, me not being as much of an economist as you, but still an economist uh, to a certain degree, I said, wait a minute, I know my history. 1974? We fell off a cliff. 1974, shit went to the fan, as they say, right? Um, we had a really bad time. There was the oil crisis, and then we start. That was the beginning of stagflation, which is stagnant economy or even retracting economy and inflation. I hypothesized. I threw it out there, Chris. Is a 5.8% increase in food over three months' time, is that a harbinger of what is to come? Are we going to see inflation because of all of the economic problems? And then also we threw so much money out there, $6 trillion of money thrown out there by the government, it makes money worth less. Your go. There's some potential for that because the thing that we've done is we've triggered two of the four things that create inflation. We've certainly dumped a lot of money into the system. We've also seen commodity prices rise in things like groceries. What we haven't seen yet is an increase in wages, and we haven't seen an increase in the core commodities like metal and oil. However, we've seen oil prices come back up into the 40s, still very low and still not even close to a threat. We have not seen any activity when it comes to the wages. But even with 40 million people out of work, the issue is manufacturing, construction, agriculture, still facing labor shortages. And people are still going to be demanding higher wages. All those people that got fired from the restaurants and the sporting venues and all that kind of stuff, they're not going to take over as framers and plumbers and machinists and farmers. And that labor shortage is still there and may still drive wages. Okay, so that being said, the federal government threw $600 per week at people. Uh, the last thing I read, 68% of the people on unemployment got a pay increase by being right. on unemployment. So you've got yep. two-thirds of the unemployed are making more money to be unemployed. So that's why they don't want to go back to work until July 31st. Pelosi wants to extend that stupid program through the rest of the year, which will absolutely destroy small businesses. But the more important thing is you said there's no uh, inflation in wages. If you just paid people $1,000 a week to sit on their ass, um, when they come back to work, they're going to demand more, or more importantly, to get them to go back to work is going to come. Exactly. That could be inflationary pressure on wages. Absolutely. I mean, what you're going to see is if this thing is extended or if something similar replaces it, you delay 
the opportunity for people to go back to work. The conversation taking place in Congress now is, you know, can we pay people to go back to work? Can we do something else? I mean, frankly, it's like, look, we helped you through a period of time. Get off your duff and get a job. There are lots of places that are reopening may not be precisely what you want, well, you know, then you probably should have made some different choices back in high school and college. Well, a friend of mine was just over last evening and he's uh, in uh, manufacturing for a large company. He's got multiple facilities. He said they could hire 330 people, but they can't get them because yeah. you go to work a industrial facility when you're getting paid not to. So there is the inflationary pressure. Okay, so going back to the people in the business of ag, we've got all sorts of listeners here, Chris. They might be driving down the road in their truck right now selling uh, agricultural inputs. They might be in the equipment business, might be cranberry farmers. They might be food processors. Big question, what's all this mean if we do get inflation? What's it mean to ag? If yeah, I, yeah, and if we get inflation, it means the same kind of challenge that we've always dealt with. Prices, economists are always a lot more worried about inflation than we are about recession. Recession often exempts whole groups of people. People do well during certain recessions, depends on the business they're in. Inflation kills everybody. And one of the things that will affect farmers is it makes banks very, very leery of lending. They don't want to lend money that they know is going to be worth less when they get it back. So an inflationary period makes lending riskier. And all of a sudden, you've got an ag community that depends on that relationship with banks. And the banks are like, I still love you, but I'm worried about inflation and I'm not going to give you the loan you want. And we've already got some liquidity issues on some more distressed operations. Right. Understanding when I talk to the bankers right now, we're not a 1980s level, but we are dealing with some of that right now. Uh, land, 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 a good holding when you got inflation, right? Right, it is. But we're also seeing inflated prices for land. We're seeing certain parts of the country where it's kind of outstripped the market, and so you have a farmer that says, "Well, I have this asset." Maybe um, it depends on on what the price is when you decide you need to sell it. And so it comes down to, to timing. Land has been overpriced, I think, all of my 50 years, with the right. exception of, uh, with the exception of uh, when we had a bust in 82, 82, mm -hmm. 84, it was undervalued probably, but not then, uh, as I always point out. I'll tell you how bad things were in the 80s. There were some farming operations and land that was so upside down, the bank wouldn't even take it back. They didn't want it. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. And, you know, it's always one of those things, asset classes like that are, are highly sensitive to the environment that you're in. And unfortunately, when people decide that they need to cash in on that asset, it's when everybody else is trying to cash in on that asset. So it's like, I have this land, I'm going to sell it. Well, every single one of your neighbors is doing exactly the same thing. You know, the time to make those kind of moves is when nobody else is. Um, but we don't think those we don't think that way. You know, it's the old thing of uh, the time to the time to run is when everybody's walking. The time to walk is when everybody's running. Yep. Uh, we're getting close to our time. So looking ahead uh, from an economic standpoint, and then for the entirety of agriculture, anybody within agriculture, any thoughts or uh, ideas? 
Yeah, I think we're basically in a holding pattern for a few more months because we're not really going to know how the economy is going to recover until we sort of have a handle on COVID-19. There are some that say we are just waiting for reliable treatments, that once people are no longer afraid of dying, then they'll relax a little bit. Others are saying, no, we're waiting for a vaccine. And others are saying, no, we need for distribution of the vaccine. Each one of those pushes it out. If we're waiting for everyone in the world to have a vaccine, we don't recover until the year 2037. Um, but if we're basically saying, look, if we can reduce the fatality rates, we can all suck it up and get back to work. Uh, we're not going to ever. I've, I've, of course, been accused of not taking the coronavirus thing seriously enough. And I said, what are we waiting on till, till we kill all the businesses or until we have a vaccine, which could be two years from now? And then even we get it. Two years ago, Chris, only 37% of the American population went and got a flu shot. Now we're supposed to believe that 100% of these people are going to run off and get vaccinated? I don't believe that at all. No, I don't either. And I think the thing we need to understand is that this is an annual event. We have been getting hit with viruses every year for the last 20, 30 years. And when it comes to fatality rates, COVID-19 is behind 16 different outbreaks that we've experienced in the last 15 years. So our reaction to this is something that's still a bit mysterious. We didn't act this way with, I keep reminding people of 1968, some of us remember 68, that was the year of the Hong Kong flu, which nobody remembers now, but that killed four and a half million people worldwide and 150,000 in the United States. And nobody even remembers it now. Yeah. So it's, and talk about social distancing, that was about the time of Woodstock. So, you know. Not yeah. a lot of distancing there. No, no. And by the way, see, I've, I've said the same thing that um, we, we can't handle. You know, agricultural people, frankly, are a little different. Uh, we accept that there's going to be a part of the herd that uh, succumbs to illness. I mean, we right. just, we just, we understand it. And it doesn't mean you can't, you, you know, you, you, what do you do? You, you, you got to do, production has to go on. Okay. Last idea, last thought. His name's Chris Keel, by the way. He's a managing director for Armada Corporate Intelligence. If you want to find him for anything, Armada, like the Spanish Armada, Armada hyphen Intel, like the company that makes chips, Armada hyphen Intel.com. Check him out. Uh, last idea, thought, closing part, closing words, wisdom. I guess my last comment would be that of all the sectors that are probably going to ride this out, it's probably agriculture because almost all of the issues we're dealing with, we were dealing with before. COVID-19 did not really add a, a dimension in the same way that it has in other industries. So the, the techniques and the strategies that have been employed for the last several years are still viable and are still going to be available to kind of pull the ag business through. Man, I like the way you think. All right, check him out. Uh, like I said, it's armada-intel.com. His name's Chris Keel. Reminder to you that this podcast, uh, the episode of the Business of Agriculture, was brought to you by Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit, a software solution that will help you make your ag enterprise more profitable. If you're interested in more visibility into your cost of production, you can do field by field or even landlord by landlord. It's about profitability. It's about running your business, about managing your numbers. Check out harvestprofit.com for your free 14-day trial. Thanks for being here, Professor Keel. You're so welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. So until next time, it's the business of agriculture. Thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. 
Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.